Hello and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queers in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. Last week we talked about Nikolai Yezov, one of Stalin's henchmen who ended up a victim of a purge. Who are we talking about this week, Ben? Well, this week we're going to talk about a man who is consistently ranked by historians of the United States as one of the worst presidents in the history of the Republic. Intriguingly, he may also have been its first gay president. More intriguingly, the president he immediately preceded, the much better known and better loved Abraham Lincoln, may also have been a little bit, you know. And while we can't know exactly what his love like was like, it is intriguing to think about the differences between homosexual love and erotic friendship, and how Buchanan's long um, association with another, let's say, confirmed bachelor may have influenced some of his worst decision-making around crucial questions of slavery, the rights of freed slaves, and the formation of the reactionary force that would come to be known as the Confederacy. On this topic of uh, 19th century male romantic friendship and homosexuality, I want to quote the historian Jonathan Ned Katz in his excellent book, Love Stories, Sex Between Men, Before Homosexuality. He writes, um, This was the world before the homosexual-heterosexual hypothesis, the universe before that great sexual divide. Pondering these 19th century tales, I hope that readers will question the assumptions of that time and ask of these stories' characters, what were their past words for men's sexual and affectionate intimacies with men? What were their ideas, their judgments, their native forms of eros? So what, I guess we're going to ask today, were the languages of lust and the concepts of eros that were native to Buchanan? Rather than trying to decide whether James Buchanan, you know, was or wasn't, We'll look at the evidence and think about what his words, actions, and desires mean or don't mean. And what is certainly true is that the uh, form of male intimate friendship that was central to his life, whether we're going to call it gay or not, was really central to his political formation um, and to some of his worst ideological positions. So James Buchanan was born in a log cabin in Cove Gap, Pennsylvania, to James Buchanan Sr. on April 23, 1791. His father was a businessman, a merchant, and a farmer, and his mother was an educated woman. His parents had both emigrated from uh, Donegal, Ireland. They were of Ulster Scott descent. Um, shortly after his birth, the family moved to a farm, and his father became the wealthiest person in town. He was a merchant, a farmer, and a real estate investor. William Findlay, who was a future governor of Pennsylvania, uh, later remembered that Buchanan was cradled amid those wild scenes of nature and the rude din of frontier life. As a mother, as a precaution, his mother tied a cowbell around his neck when he was a toddler <laughs> so that she could keep him within earshot at all times. Um, as the son of such a prominent family uh, in the sort of young, confident republic, he was educated the best that money could buy. He attended the Villages Academy and then went to Dickinson College in Pennsylvania. Uh, he was nearly expelled for poor behavior, but uh, got his second chance and graduated with honors uh, in 1809. And later that year, he moved to Lancaster, which is the capital of Pennsylvania, and was accepted by James Hopkins, one of that city's most prominent lawyers, as a student. In 1812, Buchanan was admitted to the Pennsylvania bar after an oral exam. Lancaster would remain Buchanan's home for the rest of his life. His income uh, rapidly rose after establishing his own practice. By 1821, he was earning the equivalent of 210000 U.S. a year in today's dollars um, as a lawyer. 
and he handled uh, various kinds of cases, including some high-profile impeachment trials. He began his political career uh, two years after being admitted to the bar as a part-time member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. He was a member of the Federalist Party. As I said, this was a part-time legislature meeting only for three months a year, and his uh, political work helped him add clients to his practice. The Federalist Party at that time stood for federally funded internal improvements, high tariffs on uh, imported goods, and a national bank, and was considered to be the party of kind of northern elites. And he emerged as a strong critic of the leadership of uh, President James Madison, who was from the competing uh, more populist, planter-oriented, Jeffersonian, Democratic-Republican party. He was also at this time an active Freemason, and this is one of the first of his many um, associations with these kinds of uh, male homosocial spaces. Um, he was the master of Masonic Lodge Number 43 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and um, it's interesting. At this time, there's a very active anti-Masonic movement in the United States, the anti-Masonic party actually became the first third party in the United States in the late 1820s. Um, the anti-Masonic movement was founded in the aftermath of the disappearance of William Morgan, who was a former Mason who had then become a critic of the Masonic organization, and it was believed that he had been murdered. Um, this became a form of anti-elitist and populist sentiment. This era is also a time when uh, traditional social and family values are being disrupted. Uh, economic dislocation was straining the traditional relationships of parents and children, and the second post-revolutionary generation struggled to thrive in the usual family settings. Uh, urbanization and the beginning of industrialization was beginning to set off a wave of this dislocation in the Northeast, and the institution of marriage itself, funnily enough, began to come under pressure. A growing number of young men began to follow new professional paths that were available through college education and therefore ended up marrying much later in life. And the professionals who did marry uh, ended up having fewer children than they had before. So this is when among these kinds of elite professionals in the U.S., family size starts to go down. So by 1816, Buchanan decided to get out of politics and focus on his legal career but the pull of politics uh, could not uh, leave him untouched for too long. He was at this time, as I said, aligned with the Federalist Party, which by this time had become basically a sort of passive force of tradition. Um, however, uh, still at this point, uh, there was one important part of his life that was unsettled. You know, you have a successful young lawyer who's a good public speaker and has some high-profile clients, but if you're going to have a political career, it might be advantageous to also have a spouse. And so in early 1818, he was uh, introduced to and began to court uh, Anna Coleman. Goldman? Coleman. The D is silent. You know, we really don't know where we are until we hear our name being pronounced. <laughs> My favorite film. Grover's Corners. Um, so anyway, Anne, uh, Anne Coleman was the daughter of the wealthy iron magnate Robert Coleman. Um, and... Uh, Coleman was also attached to the same uh, church as Buchanan, and uh, interestingly enough, his daughter at this time, at the ripe old age of 23, was considered to be beyond the socially acceptable age for marriage. At 23, at this point, you were officially an old maid and officially over the hill, uh, but the pair fell in love. Uh, Buchanan penned romantic verse to his uh, beloved, which I will spare you all. Um, 
I Pledge My All to You is about as good as it gets. It does. Um, and they became engaged in the late summer of 1819. But things did not end up going well for this young couple. Uh, Buchanan uh, would take trips, uh, work trips to different parts of the state, uh, and he paid a social call uh, after returning from one of these trips uh, at the home of a friend, William Jenkins, who had also studied law under the same professor. But um, his wife's unmarried sister, Grace P. Hubley, was present, and Buchanan was reported to engage for a full hour in conversation with Miss Hubley. And when Ann Coleman heard of this visit, uh, she decided to call off the engagement. Because he'd spent an hour talking to another woman. Because he had spent an hour talking to another woman. Um, she then fell into a deep depression. Uh, she was urged to visit relatives in Philadelphia to lift that depression. On her way to Philadelphia to see the relatives, she caught cold. She was then prescribed laudanum, which is an opiate that was uh, prescribed to cure illness, but could, which could be lethal in high dosages. Um, on the evening of December 8th, she was examined by a physician and found to be suffering from hysterical convulsions, and she died just after midnight. Christ. Yeah, it's one of these awful stories of uh, early 19th century and mid-19th century medicine and women and hysteria and people's symptoms not being taken seriously. And uh, the most likely thing, it was rumored later uh, that she had committed suicide and those rumors were tried to were sort of used to try to halt uh, Buchanan's political rise by some of his opponents. But it seems the most likely thing is that she just died from an accidental overdose of laudanum brought on by a misdiagnosis of the common cold. Mm. So, uh, and death from the common cold will return again in this episode, by the way. So by 1820, the Federalist Party had collapsed. And so when Buchanan decided to continue his political career by running for the House of Representatives, uh, he ran under the Republican Federalist Party. And at this point, he begins to switch his political alliance from the Northeastern Federalists and their sort of successor organizations, the Whigs and the eventually the Republican Party, um, towards the... Um, Democratic, Republican, or eventually Democratic uh, party that's consolidated as a political force by Andrew Jackson. We'll talk a little bit more about Jackson and what Jacksonian democracy meant uh, later on in this episode. Um, he became a supporter of Andrew Jackson in Congress and a defender of states' rights. Um, and in Washington, he became personally close with many Southern congressmen, including William R. King of Alabama. And he tended to view many New England congressmen as dangerous radicals. So let's now talk a little bit about William R. King. Why don't we? Because William R. King is the uh, Bonnie to James Buchanan's Clyde, if you will. Um, the period of their active friendship, reports the historian Thomas Belserski, from their initial mess arrangement in December 1834 to King's death in April 1853 spanned more than 18 years. Um, messes, bachelor messes, were... Uh, social institutions by which uh, Washington politicians lived together in these kinds of uh, male homosocial environments, domestic environments. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the episode. Belserski's book is basically devoted to the thesis that um, Buchanan and King's relationship is misunderstood as gay and that actually what you see through this friendship uh, and relationship, an intimate friendship, is uh, the way in which these kinds of living arrangements affected um, political identity formation and the kind of internal affairs of politics in this period. Um, and I think we can play with kind of both ideas as we move through this episode. Um, 
So within that timeline, uh, their relationship contained two distinct phases. First, this period from 1834 to 1844, when they overlapped uh, tenure in the U.S. Senate and often lived together while they were in Washington. And then a second period from 1844 to 1853, when they lived apart and operated more independently. Um, They intertwined their domestic fortunes while in Washington and began to forge this kind of intimate personal friendship Balsersky, Balsersky reports. Um, and there were a lot of rumors about this friendship at the time. So just worth saying. So a lot of people did live in these kinds of uh, bachelor mess arrangements in Washington, uh, as they were known. Um, but surely not all of them were referred to by um, by the president, Andrew Jackson, as Buchanan and Miss Nancy. <laughs> or Mr. Buchanan and Aunt Fancy. <laughs> Or Mr. and Mrs. Buchanan. Oh, that's kind of sweet. Or the Siamese twins. So, uh, one of Balsersky's arguments is that intimate friendship, whether we think that they had sex or not, um, their relationship provides a kind of extreme example of intimate friendship and the effect that intimate friendship had on politics. Balsersky writes, and I quote, Politicians understood their associations with other public men to include two distinct, if overlapping, categories. The first of these, personal or affective friendships, involved a significant level of intimacy, while the second, political or public friendships, functioned more instrumentally to advance common interests. Of course, politicians commonly built relationships with one another that contained elements of both kinds of friendships. Buchanan himself would later write that his friendship with King was, quote, an intimate personal and political association, end quote, that was not matched by any other in his life. So who was uh, William King? William Rufus Devane King. Um, his life uh, followed the trajectory similar to many Southern politicians. He was born in 1786 in North Carolina, also the descendant of Scotch-Irish immigrants. He also became a Freemason uh, and a planter and a slave owner. Um, in 1810, he ran for a vacant congressional seat and quickly became a favorite of Washington society, although it was reported that he was quite awkward and even standoffish around women. The uh, conclusion of the War of 1812 brought his first term of service to a close, um, and this is when he ended up being sent abroad. And this is a pretty great story. So he was sent abroad uh, as secretary of the legation to uh, Naples, the delegation to Naples and what was then the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. This is before Italian reunification. Uh, He was successful there, and so he was sent on by Secretary of State James Monroe to negotiate a commercial treaty. And this is the point when um, the good part of the story begins. So he's in St. Petersburg in the summer of 1817, preparing along with the rest of St. Petersburg society for the royal marriage of Grand Duke Nicholas, later Emperor Nicholas I, to Princess Charlotte of Prussia, who's the future Empress Alexandra Feodorovna. And um, later in life, when asked by uh, friends and political comrades and other people uh, why he had never married, King explained that after meeting uh, Princess Charlotte, he was so overwhelmed by her beauty that his unrequited love for her would forever prevent him from marrying another woman. <laughs> so so he's saying, no, I'm not gay. I'm so straight that I literally explode is my desire. I'm so straight that I have a secret unrequited girlfriend in Russia. Sure, Jan. 
So um, after this adventure, he returns to the U.S. and settles in Alabama this time, um, becoming uh, even more involved in cotton planting. So now let's jump back to Buchanan, who in 1821 is elected for the first time to the U.S. Congress. Um, he was uh, described by the journalist Anne Royal as, quote, quite a young man and a bachelor, ladies, with a stout, handsome person. His face is large and fair, his eye a soft blue, one of which he often shuts and has a habit of turning his head to one side. His countenance is open and manly, and to crown the whole, a Chesterfield in his manners, and a great politician. Um, he was six feet tall, which made him at that time, like, incredibly tall. Um, and so he was considered to be this very kind of commanding and attractive and uh, very eligible bachelor. So to talk a little bit more about this bachelor mess situation. Um, so this is a, a sort of homosocial institution in which men of the same political party would live together in the nation's capital. And Buchanan struggled as a federalist, uh, even a federalist who had sort of uh, Democratic-Republican sympathies, to find fellow partisans uh, to form his bachelor mess with. And so he ends up living with uh, some Southern Democratic representatives who, uh, and this is one of Belsierski's arguments, ended up uh, starting to switch Buchanan's politics towards a more Southern-oriented, pro-slavery direction. Um, he was, uh, from the time that he began to live with Southern politicians, um, in contact with their slaves, their African chattel slaves who attended them in the boarding house. Um, and in turn, he was known to be one of the most reliable Northern votes uh, pro-slavery. Uh, during a congressional speech in 1826, uh, Buchanan proclaimed that he would, quote, without hesitation, bundle on my knapsack and march in defense of the cause, unquote, of slavery. He this is somebody who was familiar with a particular kind of domestic culture of Southern politicians in which a domestic lifestyle that was predicated on the uh, slave labor of racial inferiors combined with this kind of uh, chivalric, aristocratic um, self-conception. Um, and again, he began to describe himself with this kind of halfway name of Federalist Republican. So as a Federalist Republican, half and half, he attempted to play kingmaker in the first presidential election where uh, Andrew Jackson was up for election. Uh, that election was uh, played out in the U.S. House of Representatives. No one won a decisive electoral college victory. Um, Buchanan tried to sort of finesse it, and it ended up blowing in his face, blowing up in his face, rather. Um, he ended up allying himself fully with genocidal Jacksonianism, but Jackson would never forgive him. Um, there's a couple funny stories about this. One, uh, Buchanan, who ended up serving in Jackson's administration, even though they didn't like each other, happened upon Jackson in his uh, private rooms at the White House, and Jackson was only dressed in shirt sleeves. He didn't have a he didn't have a coat on. Uh, Buchanan reminded Jackson that he was supposed to receive a visit from a lady, um, and encouraged him to change into more suitable clothing. And Jackson was reported to have replied. Mr. Buchanan, I once know a man in Tennessee who made a large fortune by minding his own business. <laughs> John Quincy Adams, who uh, was a political opponent of Jackson, but a very uh, sort of observer of him, uh, wrote in his diary, quote, Jackson's aversion to Buchanan is more immediately personal and vindictive. Jackson will never forgive him nor miss any opportunity of inflicting punishment upon him. And again, Jackson is one of the people who makes the most sort of public comments and jokes about 
Mr. and Mrs. Buchanan, etc. And um, it's worth pausing for a moment to talk about the political content of Jacksonian democracy. And this was an anti-aristocratic movement uh, that emphasized suffrage for all white men, slavery, the subjugation of Native Americans, and the celebration of white supremacy. Jacksonianism was the dream of the resolution of class conflict through a permanent racial underclass of free labor and a permanent source of quote-unquote empty land that was created by the violent dispossession and genocide of Native populations. So in 1822, going back to King, King was elected to the Senate. Um, his terms in the Senate were not uneventful. Uh, in the spring of 1831, he went through a months-long, uh, quote, affair of honor, um, series of threatened duels with Michael Johnston Keenan, who was a member of a powerful North Carolina family who had also relocated to Alabama. And these were kind of Baroque uh, sets of dual challenges where there'd be a dual challenge and then you would have seconds. Um, and some people have uh, supposed that the affair resulted from gossip that was circulating about King's sexuality. Um, King's bachelorhood uh, and his uh, effeminacy and these rumors did not detract from his commitment to the Jacksonian political agenda. He was a senator of the Cotton South. He wanted uh, public lands to be sold. He wanted additional lands to be taken and purchased from native tribes in the new uh, southwestern states. He was a passionate supporter of the cause of slavery. In 1832, uh, Jackson makes Buchanan minister to Russia, seemingly just as a way to get rid of him. Um, and when he goes, he ends up having his own run-in with Empress Alexandra, the former Princess Charlotte. Um, like King, uh, Buchanan found the former princess, who was now 15 years older, to be, quote, a fine-looking woman, and he apparently especially enjoyed kissing her hand as part of the customary diplomatic receiving line. Uh, he wrote uh, to a friend, quote, It is the custom here for a minister upon his presentation to kiss the hand of the empress, a task which I performed with much pleasure. So in 1833, Buchanan is made a senator, and this is a moment, just to remind our listeners, when U.S. senators are not directly elected. So um, state legislatures choose kind of prominent citizens. Um, campaigning is supposed to happen vaguely behind the scenes. It's considered to be vaguely um, déclassé to put yourself forward or to campaign too heavily. The idea is that senators are kind of these um, impartial, achieved representatives of the sort of voice of their state. Um and so he returns to Washington, D.C., and once again needs to find a mess to live in. And so it's in 1836 that Buchanan writes to King to propose that they mess together. Um, in one of their earliest surviving letters, Buchanan writes King about, quote, an annual pilgrimage, unquote, to a mountain resort in Pennsylvania where Pennsylvania politicians would gather to discuss politics and enjoy, quote, a gay and agreeable time. Um, that they did. Yes, uh, and in response, in a response letter, King teased his messmate about uh, his flirtation with a young Miss L, quote, the romping rosy girl you saw at the springs, who would probably have been fortunate had some kind friend whispered in her ear that old bachelors are mighty uncertain. <laughs> and so the two of them began to mess together. Uh, Buchanan, as a prominent northern member of a southern-dominated party, uh, who really needed to be seen as pro-slavery. And so he took these consistently pro-slavery votes 
And his views of slavery were also shaped, and this is central to Belsierski's argument, uh, by his experience with slave owners in the bachelor's mess, who again had their own slaves attending on them. Um, while they lived together, King purchased a trio of enslaved African uh, manservants, including a new personal valet named John Bell. Um, and in these ways, uh, slavery came to Buchanan to have this more kind of courtly uh, or softer or more more kind of courtly face, uh, and that was one of the sort of central myths of the antebellum South, right, that slavery was this kind of noble way of life where people kind of knew their place in this kind of feudal vision that really concealed the horrifying, reactionary, racist violence that was inherent to chattel slavery in the United States. Um, most people who lived in these bachelor's messes in Washington did end up marrying um, and usually they would marry much younger women, uh, but Buchanan and King never married. They just kept living together and continued to be inseparable. Uh, Buchanan's biographer, Jean Baker, uh, agrees with Balcheski that his relationship with King partially explains why he was what was then known as a doe face, which is a northerner who was uh, very pro-slavery. So these are two very ambitious uh, men, and in 1840 and in 1844, Buchanan and King began to uh, stick their toes in the water about becoming presidential candidates and vice presidential candidates of the Democratic Party, and they seem to have had this dream of uh, getting in together, uh, probably with Buchanan as president and King as vice president. Um, but they encountered a lot of resistance from some of their own political quarters of Washington society uh, in whispered attacks in which King was referred to as Miss Nancy or Aunt Nancy, and Buchanan was referred to as the Great Humbugger. Um, their friendship, which uh, had been politically beneficial, also became an object of scorn. Uh, quote, Mr. Buchanan and his wife, unquote, represented an aberration uh, in this kind of Washington society. And political gossip, uh, such as calling King Aunt Nancy, obviously carried more than a hint of sexual deviancy. Belshevsky notes that uh, the phrase Miss Nancy uh, was a way of describing effeminate or same-sex oriented men in the sort of popular press of the time. Um, newspaper correspondents for anti-Jackson publications had been describing King as Miss Nancy since the early 1830s. Uh, in 1837, the New York Herald described King as, quote, an old bachelor, very prim in his appearance and old maidish in his habits, and has, on this account, I presume, been called Miss Nancy, a cognomen which he still bears. Um, so in 1840, they don't make it in. In 1844, they don't make it in. The nomination in 1844 for the Democrats goes to James K. Polk, who is elected, and Buchanan becomes Secretary of State in the Polk administration. Uh, during that time, the territory of the United States was nearly doubled through the Oregon Treaty and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And um, through some of these uh, land treaties, Buchanan would often attempt to take both sides of the question. And this is one of the things that was uh, worst, I think, about him in his political career, other than the full-throated support of slavery that he never took both sides of. But, um, for example, uh, when negotiating with... Um, Great Britain over Oregon. He uh, first advised for compromise, but then came out as an advocate for annexing all of it and did the same thing uh, with the negotiations with Mexico um, after the outbreak of the Mexican-American War and so uh, was seen by Polk as this kind of person trying to play both sides and build up his own profile to become president. 
Uh, Polk ended up only serving one term. Buchanan did seek the nomination, but the nomination went to Lewis Cass of Michigan, who lost. Um, around this time, uh, King was sent to France on a diplomatic mission, and so their period of living together ended in 1844. Uh, Buchanan's letters to King don't survive. Uh, King's letters to Buchanan do. But one of the only surviving letters about King uh, that mourns their living apart was written by Buchanan to a friend of his, and I quote here, and this is one of the sort of primary pieces of evidence uh, for their, uh, for the sexual nature or the romantic nature of their friendship. Quote, I envy Colonel King the pleasure of meeting you and would give anything in reason to be of the party for a single week. I am now solitary and alone, having no companion in the house with me. I have gone a-wooing to several gentlemen, but have not succeeded with any one of them. I feel that it is not good for a man to be alone, and should not be astonished to find myself married to some old maid who can nurse me when I am sick, provide good dinners for me when I am well, and not expect from me any very ardent or romantic affection. Yeah, that sounds like a gay man writing. And then uh, King wrote to Buchanan from France, quote, I am selfish enough to hope that you will not be able to procure an associate who will cause you to feel no regret at our separation. I see. Yes, when your girlfriend goes to study abroad, you know. Yeah. Um, another story from this time, and this from a book called Affairs of State by Roger Watson, um, a Tennessee Democrat named Aaron Brown, who was a close friend of the wife of James Polk, uh, would often refer to King as Buchanan's better half. Um, and uh, the congressman uh, would regularly sort of write back to the Polks after the Polks moved back to Tennessee, after Polk's term as president, uh, giving them all the Washington gossip. And in a letter that was marked confidential, the congressman described a public fight between Buchanan and King. And in the letter, he repeatedly refers to both men as she. Here's a quote from the letter. <laughs> Mr. Buchanan looks gloomy and dissatisfied, and so did his better half, until a little private flattery and a certain newspaper puff, which you doubtless noticed, excited hopes that by getting a divorce, she might set up again in the world to some tolerable advantage. Since with casual events, which she had taken for neat and permanent overtures, Aunt Fancy may now be seen every day, triggered out in her best clothes and smirking about in hopes of securing better terms than with her former companion. And, you know, from the way that letter is written, I would also say Aaron Brown may have been, uh, yeah. if not family, then family adjacent. So the reason that there aren't more letters surviving between Buchanan and King is contested. Uh, some sources claim that the nieces of King and Buchanan burned their letters, sounds saucy, uh, while Balsierski, who is a more sort of sober reading of this relationship, dismisses this. Um, it is, however, certainly true that King followed Buchanan's instructions to destroy all of his private letters. So in 1852, King was elected vice president, uh, but by the time of his election, he was already very ill with tuberculosis, and he died very soon after. Oh, no. Quoting Gene Baker, uh, Buchanan's biographer again, uh, quote, The length and in intimacy of surviving letters illustrate the affection of a special friendship between King and Buchanan, with no way to know for certain whether it was a romantic relationship. After King died in 1853, Buchanan described him as, quote, Among the best, the purest, and most consistent public men I have known a sound, judging, and discreet fellow, and a very gay, elegant-looking fellow. So the president uh, to whom uh, King was to be vice president was President Franklin Pierce, and during uh, Pierce's administration, uh, Polk, very cleverly, ended up taking some diplomatic positions which kept him out of domestic entanglements. Domestic politics in the U.S. at this point were beginning to rip themselves apart under the strain of conflicts over slavery. 
In 1820, amid growing tensions over the issue of slavery, the U.S. Congress uh, passed a law known as the Missouri Compromise, which admitted Missouri to the Union as a slave state and admitted Maine as a free state and then banned slavery uh, north of the 3630 parallel in all future states and colonies. Um, Excellent. That's it. But in 1854, um, some Democratic senators, including... Stephen Douglas and President Pierce wanted to uh, bring the territories of Kansas and Nebraska into the Union as states in order to encourage economic development there. Um, and Southerners blocked this because both states were north of 3630 and they did not want to disrupt the balance of anti-slave and pro-slave states in the Senate. So um, the Kansas-Nebraska Act ends up repealing the Missouri Compromise. Our U.S. listeners are now remembering their 10th grade or 11th grade U.S. history classes. Uh, I certainly was as I researched this. Um, the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 repeals the Missouri Compromise and instead uh, puts out the idea that the status of slavery should be decided on the basis of popular sovereignty, which is the idea that the citizens of a territory should decide whether it is slave or free. And of course, that does not include enslaved people themselves who are counted as three-fifths of a person in order to apportion congressional seats, but do not get any say in governance and are not, in fact, considered to be political subjects. Uh, so after the passage of that bill, um, abolitionists and pro-slavery forces began to move into Kansas en masse, uh, violently displacing native populations on both sides, and had a series of violent conflicts which culminated in and during Buchanan's administration, um, which we'll talk about later. Popular sovereignty was intended to resolve the slavery question. It was thought that it would be sort of the end of it, but it ended up instead leading to the creation of the abolitionist Republican Party. Um, that's going to be a theme with all of these things. There's several moments when uh, pro-slavery forces attempt to kind of force through some kind of resolution of this slavery question, and uh, every time it just ends up leading to more resistance. Just to talk a little bit more about uh, the devastating impact on Native lives of both the abolitionist and pro-slavery settler moves into Kansas in the 1850s. Uh, an 1856 report on Indian affairs uh, explained the devastating effect of disease and war that white settlers had brought to Kansas. They reported more deaths than births in most tribes in the area, uh, citing cholera, smallpox, and measles. Uh, Osage people uh, lost 1,300 lives to disease between 1852 and 1856. In 1850, the Osage population was 8,000. In 1860, it was just 3,500. So because Buchanan was pro-slavery but had been out of the country for some of these political conflicts, he was seen as a potentially unifying figure within the Democratic Party, which itself was beginning to split between Northern Democrats who were not ideologically opposed to slavery everywhere, but who saw that uh, the North would not tolerate um, the growing expansion of slavery everywhere, uh, and Southern Democrats who tended to be um, just totally pro-slavery. And so in 1856, as a Northerner who had credibility with the Southerners, he finally got the Democratic nomination for president. His opponents in the general election were the young and dashing John Fremont of the new anti-slavery Republican Party, and Millard Fillmore, a former president running on the nativist populist but still anti-slavery American or Know-Nothing Party ticket. Millard Fillmore of the Know-Nothing Party. <laughs> um, the Know-Nothing Party was a far-right, anti-Catholic, nativist political party 
which operated, had brief uh, nationwide success in the mid-1850s. It was anti-immigration, xenophobic, and it started as a secret society. That's why it was called the Know-Nothing Party. Adherents to the movement were told, uh, when asked by outsiders, to say, I know nothing, when asked about its specifics. And that's how the group got its common name. So Buchanan becomes president. And mirroring uh, the trajectory of his old friend King, he, after being elected, immediately becomes very ill and almost dies. But he survives. Um, and he survives to give his inaugural address. And in his inaugural address, he says of slavery, and I quote, What a happy conception, then, was it for Congress to apply this simple rule that the will of the majority shall govern to the settlement of the question of domestic slavery in the territories. Congress is neither to legislate slavery into any territory or state, nor to exclude it therefrom, but to leave the people thereof perfectly free to form and regulate their domestic institutions in their own way, subject only to the Constitution of the United States. And once again, we have this wonderful uh, sort of right liberal or liberal conservative concept of freedom uh, in which people are free to choose, but uh, the way that you make that not go against the elites is by having a very strictly limited definition of who and what people are. Uh, going back to Buchanan, quote, as a natural consequence, Congress has prescribed that when the territory of Kansas shall be admitted as a state, it shall be received into the Union with or without slavery as their constitution may prescribe at the time of their admission. A difference of opinion has risen in regard to the point of time when a people of the territory shall decide this question for themselves. This is happily a matter of but little practical importance. Besides, it is a judicial question, which legitimately belongs to the Supreme Court of the United States, before whom it is now pending, and will, it is understood, be speedily and finally settled. Now, what did he mean by settled? Buchanan had been tipped off about the upcoming decision in Dred Scott versus Sanford, which came down two days after his inauguration. Uh, decision was actually influenced by his actions and is typically considered to be one of the most, if not the most, reactionary decision in the history of the United States Supreme Court. The decision was made in the case of Dred Scott, an enslaved black man whose owners had taken him from Missouri, which was a slave-holding state, into the Missouri Territory, which had been designated free by the Missouri Compromise of 1820. When his owners brought him back to Missouri, Scott sued in court for his freedom, claiming that because he had taken into free territory, he had been freed and was legally no longer a slave. He sued in Missouri State Court, which ruled that he was still a slave. He then sued in U.S. Federal Court and then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And two days after uh, Buchanan's inauguration in March of 1857, the Supreme Court issued a 7-2 decision against Dred Scott. In an opinion written by Chief Justice Roger Taney, the court ruled that black people, quote, are not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution, and therefore can claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for and secures to citizens of the United States. The ruling was supported by a reading of American state and local laws that were written uh, at the time of the Constitution's drafting. Uh, this reading uh, claimed to show that, quote, a perpetual and impassable barrier was intended to be erected between the white race and the one which they had reduced to slavery, unquote. Uh, and because Scott was not an American citizen, he had no right to file a lawsuit um, against another American citizen or even to have his case considered by uh, the federal courts. And then uh, he went even further. Taney went even further and struck down the entire Missouri Compromise as a limitation on slavery that exceeded the U.S. Congress's power under the Constitution. In other words, uh, territories north of 3630 were no longer considered to be de facto free territory. 
they were considered to be a kind of open ground for popular sovereignty. So prior to his inauguration, Buchanan uh, wrote in January 1857 to a justice of the Supreme Court named John Catron, who um, he was inquiring about the outcome of the case, and he suggested to Catron uh, that the broader the decision was, the better it would be. In other words, not just to rule against Dred Scott, but to try to use the decision to uh, invalidate a lot of existing anti-slavery legislation. And uh, the judge replied that the Supreme Court's uh, Southern majority would decide against Scott, but would probably have to put through a relatively narrow decision unless Buchanan could convince his fellow Pennsylvanian Justice Robert Cooper Greer to join the majority. And Buchanan hoped that if he had a broad Supreme Court decision protecting slavery in the territories, he could finally put the issue to rest and then focus on other issues. Uh, so Buchanan wrote to Greer and uh, prevailed upon him successfully, which meant that the majority issued a broad-ranging decision that uh, transcended the specific circumstances of Scott's case, declared the Missouri Compromise of 1820 unconstitutional, um, and went down in history as uh, one of a profoundly reactionary institution's most reactionary and shameful moments. This decision, which was intended to settle the slavery question, just like the Kansas-Nebraska Act, ended up leading to enormous popular outcry. Buchanan wholeheartedly supported this blatant white supremacy. He had consulted with his justices about the decision, and he also argued that a federal slave code should protect the rights of slaveholders in any federal territory, meaning that if you brought your slaves through free territory, um, your quote-unquote rights to own them should be protected over their rights to live free lives. His inaugural address went on. Um, and I quote, the whole territorial question being thus settled upon the principle of popular sovereignty, a principle as ancient as free government of itself, everything of a practical nature has been decided. No other question remains for adjustment, because all agree that under the Constitution, slavery in the states is beyond the reach of any human power except that of the respective states themselves wherein it exists. May we not then hope that the long agitation on this subject is approaching its end, and that the geographical parties to which it has been given birth, so much dreaded by the father of his country, will speedily become extinct. Most happy it will be for the country when the public mind shall be diverted from this question to others of more pressing and practical importance. This question of domestic slavery is of far graver importance than any mere political question, because, should the agitation continue, it may eventually endanger the personal safety of a large portion of our countrymen where the institution exists. In that event, no form of government, however admirable in itself, however productive of material benefits, can compensate for the loss of peace and domestic security around the family altar. Let every union-loving man, therefore, exert his best influence to suppress this agitation, which since the recent legislation of Congress is without any legitimate object. So essentially, he's referring to abolitionists as traitors. Yeah. And this is not uncommon at the time, despite the fact that it was the Confederates, after all, who were calling for secession from the country. Uh, many historians like Matt Carp have described how slavery and a certain kind of aggressive uh, blood-and-soil nationalism actually went hand-in-hand. So Buchanan becomes president. Um, other than slavery, he also has some bad economic luck. The Panic of 1857 began in the summer of that year. 1,400 state banks and 5,000 businesses collapsed. The South emerged largely unscathed, but a lot of new, uh, northern cities, which had more industrialized and developed economies, experienced big increases in unemployment. Buchanan uh, blamed speculators, and he uh, refused to provide relief. Um, 
he did not add any new public works project. Um, so the economy eventually uh, suffered, but a lot of Northerners suffered as a result of the panic. Back to the conflict in Kansas, because this ends up taking over his uh, presidency. So the Kansas-Nebraska Act, as we said, had created the Kansas Territory and allowed the settlers there to choose whether to allow slavery. Uh, the anti-slavery or free soil settlers ended up organizing their own state government in Topeka, and pro-slavery settlers established a second seat of government in Lecompton. In order for Kansas to be admitted to the Union, a constitution uh, of the state had to be submitted to Congress that had been approved by a majority of residents. Buchanan himself apparently didn't particularly care whether Kansas entered as a slave state or a free state, uh, but he wanted to admit it to the Union because it would likely lean towards his Democratic Party. Rather than restarting the process, establishing one territorial government, or trying to uh, have talks of some kind, he simply unilaterally chose to recognize the pro-slavery constitution. The pro-slavery government uh, then sent its constitution to Buchanan without a referendum. Even Buchanan was forced to uh, reject the entrance of Kansas without a referendum, and so he dispatched some federal agents to administer a referendum and bring out a compromise. Um, the pro-slavery government agreed to a limited vote in which Kansas wouldn't vote on the whole constitution, but just on the question of whether slavery would be allowed or not. The Free Soilers boycotted this referendum, and slavery overwhelmingly won, but then the Topeka government had its own referendum a month later in which voters overwhelmingly rejected the pro-slavery Lecompton Constitution. So after this series of uh, very unclear votes, Buchanan uh, responded by attacking the, quote, revolutionary government in Topeka, and he trans uh, transmitted the pro-slavery Lecompton Constitution to Congress. He really went all out to try to get congressional improvements. He offered favors for votes, appointments for votes, and even in some cases, cash for votes. The Constitution won the approval of the Senate in March, but a combination of know-nothings, Republicans, and Northern Democrats defeated the bill in the House. The battle over Kansas became a battle for the control of the Democratic Party. On one side were Buchanan and Southern Democrats and the Doe Faces, and on the other side were Douglas, Stephen Douglas, Senator Douglas of Illinois, and most Northern Democrats. Douglas's faction continued to support the doctrine of popular sovereignty, uh, while Buchanan insisted that Democrats respect the Dred Scott decision and its rejection of all federal interference with slavery in the territories. So it's worth noting that in this political force, the Southern Democratic Democratic Party, we went from popular sovereignty as the right-wing penumbra of pro-slavery possibility to popular sovereignty being the middle ground to the new frontier of the Dred Scott Doctrine being slavery wherever a state hadn't already explicitly rejected it. Mm -hmm. So that's how far right and how much more sort of extremely pro-slavery the Democratic Party had become at this time. The division between Northern and Southern Democrats meant that in the midterm elections of 1858, the Republicans won control of the House, and this allowed the Republicans to essentially block all of Buchanan's agenda. Buchanan then uh, began just vetoing all of their legislation, and this caused further hostilities between Congress and the White House. Among the pieces of legislation that Buchanan vetoed were the Homestead Act, which would have given 160 acres of public land to any settlers who remained on it for five years, and the Morrill Act, which would have granted public lands to establish land-grant colleges. And Buchanan argued that both of those were beyond the constitutional power of the federal government. And it's interesting to point out here that even the 
supposedly progressive force in United States politics at this time, which is promoting education and anti-slavery, uh, is still suggesting that land be freely given to settlers uh, as though there weren't already people living on this land. Mm-hmm. In March of 1860, the House created a committee, the Covode Committee, to investigate the administration for its various impeachable offenses like bribery and extortion, mostly related to trying to get the pro-slavery Kansas Constitution through. Uh, The Democratic committee members were enthusiastic in their pursuit of Buchanan as well. He had begun to lose control of his own party. Um, The committee was unable to establish grounds for an impeachment, but the majority report issued on June 17th of that year, alleged corruption and abuse of power among members of his cabinet. And so by this time, it was clear that he was not going to be reelected. The Democratic Party's factions split with Stephen Douglas as the Northern Democrat nominee in 1860 and Breckinridge as the Southern Democrat nominee. Abraham Lincoln ended up winning that four-way race, which also included the anti-secession but anti-abolitionist John Bell. So a brief break to talk a little bit about um, gay rumors and male romantic friendship and Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln famously or infamously met uh, the young strapping Joshua Speed in Springfield, Illinois in 1837, when Lincoln, uh, much as Buchanan had once been, was a successful attorney and a member of Illinois' House of Representatives. They lived together for four years, uh, during which time they occupied the same bed, specifically a, quote, large double bed and developed a friendship that would last until their deaths. Now, historians, uh, being the killjoys that they are, point out that it was not so unusual at that time for two men to share a bed due to financial circumstances for a night or two when nothing else was available, um, but for four years does seem a little bit of a stretch. Um, none of this was kept a secret at all, um, which maybe points to the fact that there wasn't anything untoward going on. Um, and many men in the 19th century may not even been conscious of an erotic possibility in bed sharing because it was public. Uh, but Jonathan Ned Katz in his book, uh, Love Stories, that I mentioned, does indicate that such sleeping arrangements, quote, did provide an important site of erotic opportunity, unquote, if other people could be kept from noticing. Uh, and he notes that the important thing is rather than thinking that there is some unchanging essence of homosexuality and heterosexuality, People in history have constantly reconfigured their affectionate and erotic feelings and acts. And he suggests that the Lincoln-Speed relationship fell within the 19th century category of intense or romantic male-male friendships with erotic overtones that were probably a world apart in that era's consciousness from the legal universe of sodomy or buggery or crimes against nature. During the Civil War, uh, Lincoln is also reported to have shared a bed in the White House with the strapping commander David Derrickson of the 150th Pennsylvania Infantry. Um, Elizabeth Woodbury Fox, the wife of Lincoln's naval aide, wrote in her diary of November 16, 1862, quote, Tish says that there's a bucktail soldier here devoted to the president, drives with him, and when Mrs. L isn't home, sleeps with him. What stuff? <laughs> So anyway, with Lincoln's victory, talk of succession and disunion reached a boiling point, and Buchanan was forced to finally address it. Both the pro-secession and anti-secession factions awaited to see how this person, who after all still was the president of the United States, uh, was going to deal with this question. Buchanan came out against the legal rights of states to secede, but also against the federal government's ability to stop them. He also placed the blame for the crisis on, quote, the intemperate interference of northern people with the question of slavery in the southern states. 
He said, quote, if they do not repeal their unconstitutional and obnoxious enactments, the injured states, after first having used all peaceful and constitutional means to obtain redress, would be justified in revolutionary resistance to the government of the Union. So in other words, uh, Buchanan was actually encouraging this uh, sedition and this succession. And what he suggested as a solution was a constitutional amendment that would have affirmed the constitutionality of slavery in the states, the constitutionality of the Fugitive Slave Acts, and of popular sovereignty in the territories. Um, like most attempts to split down the middle, uh, this didn't work. He was harshly criticized in the North for refusing to stop secession and by the South for denying its right to secede, even though he supported all of its causes in seceding. In December of 1860, just before Lincoln's inauguration, South Carolina became the first uh, state to secede from the Union. Buchanan sought to appeal to Southern moderates who might prevent secession in other states, um, and again proposed this package of constitutional amendments. He met with South, South Carolinian commissioners to attempt to resolve the situation over Fort Sumter, which is located in Charleston, South Carolina, but was a military fort that was controlled still by the U.S. military. Um, he ended up uh, meeting with counselors from the Deep South, including Jefferson Davis, who became the first Confederate president, and William Henry Trescott, and those two ended up leaking to the South Carolina government uh, Buchanan's intentions and thoughts and plans about Fort Sumter. Despite all of Buchanan's efforts, six more slave states had seceded by the end of January 1861. Um, the various cabinet members who were from those states departed. Uh, Buchanan replaced them with new cabinet members, and um, those new cabinet members used the threat of resignation to block Buchanan from surrendering Fort Sumter unilaterally to the Confederacy, which was his original plan. So within two months of Buchanan's departing the office of president, uh, the Civil War had broken out, and uh, as in most cases throughout his life, he ended up claiming that he had supported the Union all along, writing to former colleagues that, quote, the assault upon Sumter was the commencement of war by the Confederate states, and no alternative was left but to prosecute it with vigor. He wrote a letter to his fellow Pennsylvania Democrats and urged them to join the brave and patriotic volunteers already in the field. Um, but public opinion at this point had turned decisively against him. The war was referred to by some as Buchanan's War. He received angry and threatening letters, and stores displayed likenesses of Buchanan with the eyes inked red, a noose around his neck, and the word traitor on his forehead. The Senate... Uh, debated resolutions of condemnation, and newspapers accused him of colluding with the uh, Confederacy, and his former cabinet members refused to defend him publicly. He became distraught by the attacks against him, fell sick and depressed, and in May 1868 died of the common cold, having unsuccessfully defended his actions in memoirs until that time. We're on season three of our show, and we can't believe how much support we get from our listeners. Thank you so much to those of you who already support our Patreon. This season, we've launched a new website at badgazepod.com. There you can find our back catalogue of episodes, a link to support us on Patreon, and t-shirts. Beautiful t-shirts that say Bad Gaze or Evil Twink Energy in black on white or white on black. They cost 20 euros plus shipping, and 2 euros from each purchase goes to The Outside Project, a grassroots group that has organized a collectively run community LGBTIQ plus crisis and homeless shelter and community center, the first of its kind in the UK. And for our Patreon donors, we're adding new levels. For $5 a month, we'll send you our monthly newsletter of recommended reading, and high levels get free shirts. Thanks so much for your support. Again, all that good stuff, Patreon, T-shirts, episode archive, is available at badgazepod.com and linked in the show notes. That's badgazepod.com. Wow, he sounds um, 
like a like a incompetent politician, like truly incompetent. A truly incompetent politician who had no seemingly ideological commitments except to the violent enslavement and racial inferiority of African Americans. When it comes to talking about his sexuality, um, one thing I'm struck struck with is is how open it seems that people were in discussing that as a possibility. You know, like it's mocking, but it's not this level of like um, disgust that you'd get, say, in 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 um, in England during the Oscar Wilde trial. Even though they seem to be, be implying the same thing, did America have like a notably different? Attitude towards um, towards homosexuality than um, than Victorian England. Well, there's a few things there. Um, first off, uh, the United States was uh, still a sort of more rough and ready place. Um, there seems to have been a climate of uh, greater licentiousness, at least in the kind of private affairs of uh, of people than was common in uh, England at the time. Um, I mean, it was a place where politicians would be uh, doing all sorts of things that were not considered, would not have been considered appropriate in English high society. You know, you have politicians who are kind of drunk and politicians is kind of living in these bachelor messes in Washington, D.C. that are a far cry from the kind of um, beautiful brick townhouses and wigged servants of uh, of England at the time. Um, a second difference is that you have a series of conversations that are happening 30 years before the kind of medical discovery of the homosexual as opposed to 30 years after. And so a lot of this stuff just hasn't really been coded as much. um, And it's something that maybe is a, is a something that can be laughed about or something that can be gestured at, but is not necessarily something that is considered to be as much of a present danger, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the people heterosexuals don't really exist either sexuality doesn't really exist um and then there is also this kind of frontier sexuality that um someone like whitman obviously takes a lot of inspiration from for his kind of uh, homosexual identity formation but uh this idea of this kind of uh, male romantic intimacy and a certain kind of uh masculinist you know um fellow travelers on the frontier cowboys, etc. I mean, it takes various different forms, all of which have um, misogynist and uh, violent racial implications. Do you think that um, the nature of uh, political life at that time, I mean, you're talking about these sort of um, messes, these these like gentlemen's messes, is inherently um, more homosocial than the barri- that those barriers between uh, homosexuality and heterosexuality which hadn't even been, de- been defined scientifically weren't even necessarily discussed or, or like there's much more opportunity within within uh, within that homosocial environment anyway that that it wasn't yeah it wasn't so strictly limited certainly and you've also got i mean it's a it's it's a very much a classed society in many ways, but it is a classed society where the idea that it is a classless society is very important to everyone in it, right? The English political elite of this time is not going to tell you, is not going to try to tell you that England is a classless society, classless society. They're going to say, no, we have class and we're very proud of it. And we're proud that the right sorts mm. of people run things. Whereas in the US, this Jacksonian era, 
the sort of self-conception is that there are no classes, right? And the idea is that the class conflict of the old world is going to be resolved through the genocide of native people and the resulting availability of land and resources for everyone. That basically everyone can become rich because we can eliminate native people and then with the twin with the twin uh, pillars of expropriated land and free enslaved labor, we can lift up every white man and every white man can be an aristocrat. Yeah. And so in that environment, you've got, um, I think, a moral code and an interpersonal moral code that is a little bit freer and a little bit more rough and ready than an equivalent moral code among a political elite in Europe, where there's still more of an idea that the right sorts of people should be running things and therefore they should be behaving in the right sorts of way to demonstrate their sort of righteousness. Um, those ideas definitely come into play in the United States in the Victorian era, much more than they did at this era, uh, which is a, that, that's a moment when, um, the prevailing mood in the United States is that it wants to prove that it's like, you know, just as sophisticated or just as civilized as Europe. And so morality becomes the kind of battlefield on which, um, that case is prosecuted. Yeah. I mean, later in that sort of, late Victorian sort of end of the 19th century era is that when you move to this position where it's no longer um, an entirely homosocial world of um, of professional politicians and moves this idea of like the representation of the family perhaps and that as you you know this sort of model you have going into the 20th century where there's something extremely suspicious about anybody who is not married with children becoming a politician yeah I mean even by the time that Buchanan was president, I mean, even by this moment in the 1840s and 1850s, kind of after that 1820s and 1830s high Jacksonian uh, rough and ready era, this is already starting to change. I mean, Lincoln did have a wife. He married very well, both socially and financially. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln was reportedly not a particularly passionate marriage. Um, and by the 1860s, uh, you have popular magazines beginning to spread this kind of middle-class idea of the cult of true womanhood uh, or the cult of domesticity. There's the domestic sphere where, and this is sort of in accordance with what's going on in the in the UK at the time, um, or in Britain at the time, rather, there is no UK at that point, uh, where the domestic sphere is the subject to woman in the way that the public sphere is subject to man. And so the woman is supposed to exert this kind of uh, beneficial moral influence over um, over the family, and um, this is where we get a lot of these ideas about men being kind of uh, naturally more aggressive or more or more uh, rough or more amoral, and women are the ones who are supposed to kind of keep them under control um, and sort of rein them in and uh, provide this kind of moral education for children and sort of serve that social reproductive function of the middle classes. So, Ben... Um... Good gay or bad gay? Bad. And also, I'm going to disagree with Balsierski and Gene Baker and these other historians who are being very uh, picky about uh, whether or not we actually have, you know, photographic evidence of dicks going in and out of other orifices and say that he was also, I think, pretty clearly a big old homo. Yeah, those letters, uh, I think, even even within that context of this sort of different... Um, attitude towards some male friendship are um, affectionate to the point of romantic. I would say so too. 
So if people want to learn more about James Buchanan, I suggest that they read Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King by Thomas Belsierski. That was one of my primary sources, one of the main sources I used to research and report this episode. Uh, James Buchanan, a biography from the American President series uh, by Jean H. Baker. A book by Robert P. Watson called Affairs of State, The Untold History of Presidential Love, Sex, and Scandal. I can only assume that the current administration will lead to an entire second volume of that book. <laughs> um, and uh, the book Love Stories, Sex Between Men Before Homosexuality by Jonathan Ned Katz, the indispensable pioneer of queer history. And um, people can also find Buchanan's public speeches, his inaugurals, etc., uh, in variously published online fora. We have linked to the ones that we quoted extensively from in the show notes, as we always do. So you can follow the show on Twitter at BadGazePod. You can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter, hugh.substack.com. See you next week. Bad. 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 Bad.